the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Um, These are the words of Jesus that we're going to see this morning in Mark chapter 10. Um, This is another, this is the third prediction of his death, of what is going to happen to him, of where he's headed, about what is about to happen, and he is going to be very clear this morning. He wants the disciples to understand, he wants us to understand But as we've seen all along the way, the disciples still didn't quite get it. And we're going to see that a little bit again this morning. They have this sort of false view that Jesus, um, when they arrive where they're going, and we'll see where he's going for the first time um, in Scripture. We, of course, already know where he's headed. Um, But what he has come to do, that he is not going to just conquer everything and be this military hero, um, but he's going to show what real power looks like. And so that's what we're looking at today. Um, We'll continue to clarify what it means to be a disciple by showing how Jesus uses his power this morning. Um, We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. If you want to turn along with us, it's page 898. Um, If you're using the Bible that's in front of you in the pew, um, or you can follow along always in the YouVersion Bible app um, and find us, our event on there. Excuse me. So today, I know we usually read it all the way through. Today, we're going to read it in parts um, as we go and then kind of work through it that way. So we're going to start in verse 32 um, of chapter 10. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And the disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, where you are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. And so we, of course, know where Jesus is headed. We've called this section, right, on the way. He's on the way to Jerusalem. We started way back in chapter 8, and so this is the end of that section today. And so we're going to see Mark actually has a big sandwich for this one. We talk about Mark's sandwich technique. And so this section started with um, Jesus healing a blind man. It's the one where he kind of takes two tries to heal him to kind of represent that the disciples didn't quite understand or see clearly what Jesus was trying to do. And so today he's going to end I'm giving away the ending, but you guys are probably already know that. He's going to end with healing a blind man as well. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. He's heading towards Jerusalem. And if you notice, it says they were astonished and afraid about what Jesus was doing. And the reason why is he's heading to Jerusalem, the center for the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders who all the way back to chapter 3 were beginning to try to kill him. And so Jesus is essentially walking into the hornet's nests on his own, and they're just like, why are you doing this? Why are you going there? Um, Shouldn't we be afraid? We know exactly what's going to happen to you when you get there, and it's probably not going to be good. But Jesus continues. He has set his face towards Jerusalem, and he's going to end up there um, no matter what gets in his way. Not even the fact that we see in this prediction that he's going to be handed over and condemned and mocked and killed when he gets there. So this is Jesus' third prediction of his death. It's actually the most clear and the most comprehensive that we've seen um, so far. It talks about being given over to the Gentiles and to the Jews, and so it's very specific in what it talks about. 
it's actually so clear, and it turned out to be so true, that some scholars have said um, this actually got added in afterwards, that Jesus, after he died on the cross and went through all of this stuff, and they saw the steps, that they went back in and added this prediction. This is because it was so clear. But that's not actually what happened. Jesus did predict it because he had an understanding of his mission of, of the, what the Messiah would do from Psalm 22. It says, But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me, and they sneer and shake their heads. And Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Right? Those verses and others with them reveal what the Messiah was really going to come to do. And so it's not a prediction that was added after the fact. Jesus could see that in Scripture just as we can go back and we can connect the dots to passages in the Old Testament that connect what the Messiah would do clearly to Jesus. And so Jesus knew exactly what he was headed towards, but he still did it. He demonstrated incredible power throughout the book of Mark, right? We've seen him heal people. We've seen him actually bring people back to life. But in this passage, we're going to see how he uses his power and what real authority looks like. So as we work through this, we're going to see first the way not to do it, and then we're going to see how Jesus does it. So we're going to jump back in in verse 35, and we're going to see that the disciples actually wanted power for themselves. And so we pick up in verse 35, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. And they answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. And Jesus told, said to him, You will drink the cup I drink, and you'll be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So James and John come up to Jesus, and they ask him, right, whatever we ask you, you just have to say yes. Right? And I think we all know that whenever you hear those words, you know that something crazy is about to come after that. Right? When your kids or a coworker or your boss says, it doesn't matter what I say, you just need to say yes to whatever I'm about to ask you. Right? Can you do that? We all know there's trouble coming, which is exactly what happens. Right? Can you do whatever we say? And Jesus responds, well, what do you want me to do for you? Um, just keep in mind as we're working through this, this is going to be the exact same question that Jesus asked the blind man at the end. So essentially we have this contrast between what the disciples are asking for here and what the blind man is asking for later. And so they request to sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus in glory. Now for us, this may not be a big deal because we don't really care who sits on our right and left most of the time. Um, but this, in that time, was a position of power and authority. Think of a king on his throne, and the person at his right hand was kind of the second in command, and the person on his left side would be third. And so it's a position of power and authority and recognition. And so what they're saying is, can you put us in positions of power and authority and recognition above everybody else? We want to be second and third. I know there's like... 10 other disciples, but we're definitely more important than them, right? So can you put us in those places? And maybe they thought, right, because it is James and John, so James, John, and Peter are kind of in the inner three, 
So they kind of have this elevated status a little bit already. Um, so they thought, hey, we're already in. Maybe we can just boost that up a little bit. And I think also they thought, hey, we're about to go to Jerusalem. And if he really is the Messiah, then he is going to conquer. He is going to be the king. And so I think they imagined him literally ruling on earth from a throne and them sitting with him. I don't think they still quite understood what Jesus was really coming to do. And so Jesus again answers them and he says, look, guys, you still don't understand. You don't quite get it. You don't have a clear picture of what I am here to do. Even though I just told you again for the third time exactly what is going to happen to me, exactly what I'm going to do, you still don't understand. You're still missing it. And then he begins to clarify what that looks like. Right? Can you drink of the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And so this cup that he's talking about in Jewish thought and in the Old Testament is referring to divine judgment against human sin. Specifically, it's usually the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out on him, bearing God's wrath in the place of sinful mankind. Um, there's passages and prophets in the Old Testament, and what they talk about is usually like a big pot um, that's full, and it pours out, this cup pours out over people, and that's kind of a sign that what is going to happen to you is not going to be good, that God is really going to destroy you. And so when they're talking about cup and being, um, doing that, that's what they're talking about, this judgment of God. And when he talks about baptism, he's talking about his suffering and death, which would pour over him like a flood. Um, a lot of times, especially in the Psalms, we see the, the phrases, right, I'm in the depths or I'm in the deep, and it's this sign, this picture that we're deep under the water, that the water has come over us. And so when he's talking about this baptism, he's talking about the baptism of, of suffering and trials and persecution, that it kind of overwhelms you like a flood would overwhelm you and you'd be completely covered in it. And their response to that is, we are able, we are able to do that. Um, to me, when I read this, it sounded a lot like somebody who agreed to something without reading the fine print. Because um, I think if they would have read the fine print or they understood, it would have probably said something like this. Um, Following the same path as Jesus may result in trials, persecution, and possibly death. Um, please count the cost before following Jesus. Right? That's what the fine print says on what they're asking for. And they just kind of said, yeah, we can do that, no problem. They were thinking at what they could get out of it and not exactly what was going to happen. So Jesus responds and tells them, basically, right, you will get these things, you will get the persecution and suffering, because you said you could handle that, just like I am going to get it. But I actually can't promise you that you're going to get the positions that you want after you go through that. Right? It's not my place to give that to you. So they asked for positions of power, and he says, well, I can't give you that, but instead you're, also, you're going to get persecution and suffering. So just to fast forward... Um, as a fun aside here, um, his prediction actually was fulfilled. James is usually known as the first apostle to be martyred for his faith, whereas John, who endured years of persecution and exile, was one of the last apostles to die. And so this would come true. They would suffer um, persecution and suffering because of following Christ. But what's happening here is they wanted to use their position to guarantee that they received a higher honor and more power. They were using this position to gain more for themselves. Right? And I think we're often the same way. Right? We want more power, 
more recognition, more authority, or even more money or possessions so that we can get more of what we want. Right? If I have this position or I have this title, then people will listen to me. I can make the decisions. Or I can get this thing I've always wanted. Or maybe we say people then will take me seriously. Or people will think I have accomplished something. Right? All of those things, if we look at that list, are for our good, for our enjoyment, for our validation. And they are basically, I think, wrapped up in selfishness. All of those things point to what we can get for ourselves. But Jesus is going to show us that there's a better way to live, a better way to use power, authority, and recognition. So let's look at what happens next in verse 41 um, and following. It says, When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Right? Wait a second. It was our turn to be in charge. How come we didn't get to ask first? Right? I think that's really why they're upset, because James and John beat them to the punch for what they were already going to ask for. And Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So other disciples find out, they're upset, hey, you beat us to it. And then Jesus begins to show them, to reveal to them what real power, real authority, real strength looks like. Now, it is just interesting to note that Jesus didn't actually rebuke them for being ambitious, right? I think their ambition of being holy, of being followers of Christ, was a good thing. He just corrected them for why they wanted that, right? They wanted to use it for their good, for their recognition, for their power, so that they could have more. They were focusing on themselves instead of following Christ. And so he clarifies it for them, right? He talks about them, the Gentiles, they lord it over, they act like tyrants, they boss people around. I think this is a concept we understand, so I'm not going to explain it a whole lot to you because we see um, abuses of power all the time. I think it's one of the reasons all of us are a little anti-authority because we see authority abused so often. We've been burned, and those in power take advantage and use whatever they get for their own gain and not for the good of others, whether that's more power, more money, or more influence, right? It's, we have these weird things like it's, it's, everybody, it's good to be a boss, but it's not good to be bossy, right? You can be a boss and be in charge, but just don't be bossy while you're doing it, right? We have these weird things that kind of fit like that. That's kind of the concept he's talking about. And so Jesus tells them it shouldn't be this way. Not only should it not be this way, that in the kingdom of God, it works completely differently. And he flips it on his head. He says, instead, you should be a servant. You should serve others. Now, for most of us who are here, this is not a radical thing to hear. I think most Christians actually accept this, that we're supposed to serve others, that we're supposed to help others. Um, We may not be very good at it, but we at least accept that that's something that Christians are supposed to do. I'm supposed to serve others. I'm supposed to care for others. I'm supposed to use my gifts, my material possessions to encourage and to build up others and meet their needs. We're supposed to do that. And I think we're all pretty much okay with that. We know we're supposed to do it. Maybe we wish we could do it more. But Jesus goes one step further. Notice he says, don't just serve, but be a slave. 
right? Be a slave. And the reason he says slave is it was somebody who gave up their rights to serve someone else, right? That's a step past using what I have to help other people, right? Because at the end of the day, it's still mine and I still have control over it. It still belongs to me and I can decide what to do with it, right? But if I give up my rights, then it doesn't really belong to me. It's not really mine. I don't have the authority over it to use it how I please. So are we ready to say, if we are slaves, my time doesn't belong to me? It's not mine. I have no rights over my time. My resources and my possessions don't belong to me. They're not mine. My plans are not mine to make. Everything I have has been given to me by God, not just for my own use and my own life, but for the good of others. Right? There's a verse that talks about using your gifts to serve others as good stewards of the gifts that God has given you. Right? We are stewards, which means you're just in charge of it for a little while. It doesn't really belong to you. You're just using what God has given you for his purpose. Right? We have no right, we have no claims over those things, especially not long-term. So that's what Jesus is saying is to give up your right. Are you willing to give up your rights to serve others? One step past just helping, right, of giving up your rights. And then Jesus gets very specific here, and he talks specifically about what he has come to do. Right? I didn't come to be served, Even though I am the Son of God, I am worthy to be served, I am the King. But I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. And then we give this verse, and this this is really the key, one of the key verses in Mark and kind of puts together everything that he's talking about. We see how Jesus serves. He serves by giving his life as a ransom for many. So this concept of, of ransom, I want us to Uh, Just listen to the definition first, and then we're going to work through this. I'm actually going to spend a good bit of time on this because I think it's an important concept for us to understand that God gave his life as a ransom for us. And so ransom, if you look it up in the dictionary, it'll say something similar to um, to redeem from captivity or bondage by paying the demanded price. Now, I think for a lot of us, or at least for me, when I think of ransom, um, the first thing that comes to mind is probably kidnapping, right? Somebody kidnaps somebody, they demand a ransom, even though that's like only thing that mostly happens on TV. We don't actually experience that very often in real life, but TV has taught us that that's how it works, I think. So we often think of that as ransom, but I want us to think more in lines of captivity, that we are imprisoned and we are on death row. Now, the only way to get off of death row is you really have two options, right? You're either declared innocent and you're let go, or you die. Those are the two ways out, right? So if you are on death row, those are your options. And we are imprisoned because we have broken the law. We have broken God's law through our sin and rebellion, And all the rebels, which would include us, are imprisoned and on death row. We are all under his judgment, and we will experience his wrath for what we have done against him. There is nothing we can do on our own to be free or to get out or to keep our lives. We need help from the outside. 
And this is what Jesus says to, he came to do right here. He came to redeem us from our captivity, to redeem us from our bondage to sin and death by giving his life as the ransom, as the price for our freedom and our life. Now, I want to be clear here because this question has been asked um, throughout history in Christianity that, well, when we think of ransom, we think, hey, you've got to pay that ransom to someone. And so the answer way a long time ago, and maybe some people now was, well, that ransom must have been paid to Satan, right? Because he's the enemy. But I want to be very clear that there is no evidence anywhere that this ransom is paid to Satan. Not only that, but it's very important to understand that if this ransom was paid to Satan, that means Satan has the authority over God and can make demands of him, right? That's not what the Bible tells us Satan can do. He cannot have any authority over God. He cannot make demands of him and say, if you don't pay this, then I'm going to do this. That's not how it works. Satan does not have that much power, right? So that's a little historical controversy I just threw in for you, but I wanted to make that clear um, just so you could understand that. And so Satan, we see throughout Scripture, is described as the one who has been judged and defeated by God. We're just kind of in this moment, in this time, waiting for the final blow to come. Instead, we should think of it like this, right? The ransom of Christ's life was paid to God the Father, who accepted it as just payment for the sins of many. We see this in several verses, Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Or Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? And Romans 3.23, we all know 23, but I think 24 is also important. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus served us. He used his power not for himself, but to set us free and to give us life. He overcame the power of death through his own death and resurrection so that through faith in him we could have life. He freed us from the condemnation of our sin. Right? Romans tells us we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took the wrath. He took the punishment for us so that we could be set free and have life. Through Christ, we are no longer on death row. We are no longer, <clears throat> excuse me. We are no longer counted among the rebels. We are all declared innocent and set free. Right? That's what Jesus did for us. And the beauty of this, even though if this, as if that wasn't enough, that Christ died for us so that we could be set free, so that we could have life. I think we often don't think of it on those terms that we are essentially on death row and that makes it a big thing. But the beauty of this goes on and on because Jesus served us and he gave his life for us freely. Nobody made him do it. Nobody forced him to do it. Nobody tricked him into do it. Nobody coerced him into doing it. 
right? John 10 makes it very clear that no one takes it from me. This is his life. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father that he freely gave his life for us. He freely sacrificed for us. He gave it up for us. And he did it for all of us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. For all of us. He died for all of us. He paid the price for all of us. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is that this is what true power looks like. Right? Because nobody had more power than Jesus. The Son of God come to earth living among us. He wasn't using it for his own gain. He wasn't using his power at the expense of others to have more. Right? True power is taking your authority and using it not for yourself, but for the good of others, for those who are in need of help. Right? And I think that lesson is just as needed now as it was then. That everything that you have, everything that you've been given, all of your blessings, whether it's a ton or whether it's a little, have been given to you to serve others. That your power, your resources, your authority, your possessions are all given to you for the good of others. So we're going to see how next Bartimaeus, a blind man, responds to this. So we'll pick it up again in verse 46. And it says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. And then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. And immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. And so when Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was coming, He began to shout, right? Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And notice in this, he calls Jesus the son of David. This is the first time that we hear this title given to Jesus in the book of Mark, this title of son of David. But we've seen hints of it along the way, all the way throughout. And in the Old Testament, there's this prophecy that the Messiah who would come would be of the line of David. He would sit on the throne of David. So he connected Jesus to the Messiah and to being the descendant of David. And this concept of being the son of David was an important title that came to mean Jesus and the Messiah. And so at some level, Bartimaeus believed that Jesus was the Messiah that he had the power to save him, that he had the power to heal him, that he understood what Jesus had come to do. And throughout this section of Jesus being on the way to Jerusalem, 
right? which we talked about healing a blind man at the beginning. And then it's filled with Jesus clarifying more and more and more what it means to be the Messiah and what he came to do and what it means to follow him as a disciple. <clears throat> it now ends with the healing of a blind man who identifies Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of David. <clears throat> and if you notice... Excuse me. One of my issues is mold, and so when it's been raining for two days, it's not a good combo. Um, so that's what's going on. I promise I'm not sick. You don't have to worry about that. So for the first time, if you notice, Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't tell him to be quiet. He accepts this title of son of David. Right? He accepts it because... He's on the doorstep of fulfilling what he came to do as the Messiah. Right? He's on the way to Jerusalem. And next week, we're going to see him actually enter the city and to see what happens. And so Jesus is basically saying, I am so close to fulfilling it, to showing everybody who I really am and what I really came to do. That There's no longer a need to keep it a secret that I am the Messiah or to worry that somebody's going to take it the wrong way. Because it's going to be very clear in the next couple of weeks, right, in his life, what he came to do. And then Jesus asked the same question of Bartimaeus that he asked of James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And where James and John asked for recognition, power, authority, Bartimaeus, right, he asked for two things. He asked for mercy, have mercy on me, and I just want to see. Can you just help me? Right? And Jesus heals him and restores his sight and his faith makes him well and he can see. Right? And so we have this contrast between him humbly seeking out Jesus to have mercy on him, to help him, to give him life. And then we have James and John who just want more power, more recognition, more authority. And I think that's maybe something we should think about or evaluate this week is, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we serving Christ? Is it to get more for us? Or is it to have more so we can use it to serve others? What is the point of what we're doing? Why do we want power, recognition, authority? And I know some of you may say, well, I don't want more authority. I'm fine right where I am. I get that. But at some level, you're in charge of something. You've been given authority over something. So Jesus shows us that real power is using what you have to serve others. And so this morning, we are remembering, we are going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us through communion. That all of us were on death row because of our sin and rebellion. That we were imprisoned with no hope of freedom and no hope of life. But Jesus came and he died in our place. He took our punishment so that we could live, so that we could be free. And we are actually declared innocent as we trust in him, as we put our faith and hope in him. We're declared innocent and we're set free and we're given life, not just on this earth, but for all eternity. And it's, it's that sacrifice that we remember today, that we were moved from death to life. 
that we were changed from being rebels under judgment to being members of God's family. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to remember that through communion this morning. You guys, pray with me really quick. He says, God, we come before you, and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you did come to serve us. You did come to give your life as a ransom for us. That you took the payment in our place for us, for our mistakes, for our sins, because we fell short of God's standard. But you didn't. You lived a perfect life. You did nothing wrong. You did not deserve death, but you freely gave your life for us. You served us instead of using your power and ability and authority to serve yourself. So God, I pray that you would help us to see how maybe we are doing that in places that that might be hidden to us right now, that the Spirit would show us places where we might be using things or what we have or our positions to gain things for ourselves instead of for serving others. Right, but that's really the call of discipleship, to serve others, to serve you wholeheartedly. And whatever you ask of us, whatever you call us to do, whatever you guide us to do through your Spirit, we just do it. Right, because everything that we have is a gift from you. We don't really own it, and it doesn't really belong to us. So help us to see that and to give freely and to help freely and to love others well and to meet the needs of those around us. So God, I pray that you will help us to see the beauty of your sacrifice for us. And that would in turn lead us to trust in you and to serve others as well. In your name I pray, amen.